Now, Dr. Douglas is not able to be with us this morning, so we'll turn in the Word of God ourselves to the book of Exodus and chapter number 32. Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to read the first eight verses together and then take a break and pick up the reading again at verse 25. So if you have a copy of God's Word, we encourage you, or maybe the person beside you does, but if not, please listen along to the words of Exodus chapter 32, and we're reading together from verse number 1. Exodus 32 and verse number 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning, God's precious word, Exodus 32, the first verse. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made the proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, Get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of of Egypt. And if you go down then to verse number 25 of the same chapter, Exodus 32, 25. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor, and the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses." And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing. 
this day. And we'll end our reading at verse 29, and we know that God will bless the reading of his precious word to every heart. I want to draw your attention this morning to a question that Moses asked the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 32 and verse number 26, when he simply asked them the question, who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? Can I make an appeal this morning that you really concentrate and really listen and take to heart this morning what the Spirit of God is saying to us through the Word this morning. We really need the Lord's help. I'm very conscious of that. There's something about coming to the pulpit Lord's Day by Lord's Day. You feel your weakness, your inability, your unworthiness, a sense of nervousness and fear in a sense as well. And we're very conscious of that this morning. And I'm making an appeal that all who know and love the Lord pray earnestly that the Spirit of God this morning will speak to your hearts. I believe the Lord has a word for us and I'm conscious of our need for help. So let's pray together. Uh, we don't just say that as a matter of form or just to fill out words or take up time in the meeting. We really need the Lord to speak. So let's do that just now and let's entreat the Lord and let's pray to God this morning that he will speak to your hearts by his Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly and reverently again come before the throne of grace. We feel, O God, our great need of the Spirit of God to help us. We pray, Lord, that you will speak by thy Spirit into our hearts. Can't help but feel, O God, that in these days life just seems to be passing us by so quickly. And it seems, O oh God, that we are oftentimes just not as conscious of the presence of God as we should be. So, our Father, we pray that you'll purge us with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. And grant today the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Pray that you will challenge our hearts, Lord, and not only challenge us, but change us. And bring us to the place where God would have us to be. So Lord, give us hearts that are soft and tender. Hearts that are responsive. Deliver us, O God, from the fear of man and from the opinions of men. And may the Holy Spirit just bring us right to thy feet. And may the word of God be open before us and may our hearts be open to the word. Help us now, we pray, in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen. Exodus chapter 32, verse 26. Who is on the Lord's side? Beloved, in our day and generation, there can be no more a challenging, relevant, or important question than this one here to the professing church of Jesus Christ. Who really, honestly and sincerely, who is on the Lord's side. You know, this question, this verse of Scripture has been in my heart for a number of weeks now, for quite some time. I've felt exercised to preach it again and again and again, but honestly and sincerely before God, I've put it off. I've procrastinated. 
I've tried to look at other verses of Scripture. I've tried to get away from it simply for the fear of causing offense. And the realization that this is such a challenging question and so solemnizing and I believe in a sense that the Lord with a question like this brings us to a crossroads and asks us the question today, who really wants to go on and go through with God? Or are we content just Sunday by Sunday to go through the motions, to play church, to profess the name of Jesus Christ, but by our lives and our hearts and our conduct, perhaps show to the Lord that maybe Just maybe we are not really on his side at all. I believe today in the church of Jesus Christ, there's a glaring disparity between what we say we believe and how we actually live. A disparity between what we say we believe and how we actually live. Our motto text for 2023 is Romans chapter 8 and verse number 31. And what a glorious text it is. If God be for us, then who can be against us? And the reality is that every professing believer wants the Lord to be on their side. We want the Lord to be with us. We want the Lord to be for us. We want the Lord to be behind us, especially in times of crisis. Whenever ill health comes, how often do we come running to the throne of grace, asking the Lord, now Lord, I want you to be on my side. I've I've got bad news as far as my health is concerned, or maybe there's uh, financial adversity, maybe there's a problem in the workplace, a problem in the family. We experience some type of adversity. And we want the Lord to be on our side. We want the Lord to be for us. We want the Lord to uphold us and strengthen us. And we really need God to be for us. And then whenever we face bereavement or we come ourselves to face death and then the great eternity. Oh, we so want the Lord to be on our side. And we want to know that all is well. And want to know that we are going to a better place and We're someday going to be in heaven. And of course, all of those things are important. We need the Lord to be on our side. We want the Lord to be for us. But friends, this morning, in practical terms, are we on the Lord's side? Sometimes I have the idea that we want to be over here somewhere and say, no, Lord, I want you to come and be with me where I am. But maybe the Lord's saying to us, but I want you to come over to my side and side with me. In practical terms, are we really on the Lord's side? Are we really with him, living in his presence? Are we for the things that God is for? And are we against the things that God is against? In practical terms, whenever it comes to the realm of worship, obedience, Love, commitment, consecration, surrender, morals, self-denial. Are we on the Lord's side? Or is it just that we want the Lord to be on our side whenever we need Him? But the Lord challenges us surely through this verse, are you really on my side? You see, 
it's evident here that Moses, the servant of the Lord, found it very difficult as he looked at the children of Israel, God's professing people, as he looked at them at this juncture in their history, he found it very difficult externally looking at them, who is really on the Lord's side here? Who's really in love with the Lord? It's very difficult for Moses to tell. And friends, this morning, I just want to speak to you very simply from the heart. As the Word of God has challenged my heart in the secret place, and as I shy away from a verse like this, I just want to speak to you from the heart to the heart. And I pray that you'll listen and take on board what God is saying to us through His Word this morning. As we look at this question, let's consider briefly the background to the question. Moses here stands at the very gate of the camp before all the children of Israel and cries out, Who is on the Lord's side? And if you're really on the Lord's side, I want you to come and stand with me. And get up from whatever you're doing and from wherever you find yourself presently and physically, publicly, and personally come over here and show to the rest of the children of Israel that you really mean to be on the Lord's side and go through with God. But why did Moses ask the children of Israel such a question? Surely all of them are on God's side. After all, this is a peculiar people, a chosen nation. These are people that have been delivered from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. They have come out of Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They've now arrived at Mount Sinai. God has given them the tables of the law. And surely they're all God's people. And surely they're all on the Lord's side. They probably presumed or assumed that they were on the Lord's side. And they assumed as well that the Lord was definitely on their side. The tragedy was that presumption and profession don't always cut it, friends, with God. And I believe in our day and generation, presumption and profession certainly are not cutting it as far as real Christianity is concerned. It wasn't what they presumed or what they professed that really counted. What really counted was where they actually were and what they were actually doing and how they were actually living that showed whose side they were really on. And so whenever Moses asked this question of necessity and answering that question, it demanded a change of position, a change of behavior, a change of heart to step out from the crowd of professing believers and come out from all of that and say, yes, I am truly on the Lord's side. It's what they were doing that spoke the loudest. Actions certainly speak louder than words. And whenever the greatest preacher that ever lived, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ, preached the greatest sermon that was ever preached, and that was the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of that sermon, in Matthew chapter 7, you've got some of the most solemn words in all the Bible. And I want you to listen to them this morning. He said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. 
many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, you have prophesied in your name, cast out devils in your name, and in your name done many wonderful works. And the Lord says, but I will profess unto them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. And then he says, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Not just sitting listening to a sermon or listening to truth or even listening to the words of Jesus Christ. Important as that is, the Lord says, he that heareth and doeth is like a man that built his house upon a rock. And whenever the storms and the floods and the wind came, the house stood. And then he goes on to say in verse number 26, But everyone that heareth my sayings and doeth them not shall be like a man that built his house in the sand. And you see the emphasis again and again and again. It's not so much upon hearing, but responding and actually doing. Now what have the children of Israel been doing? Whenever Moses, the servant of the Lord, was in the mountaintop, they had been making and worshipping a golden calf. Making and worshipping gods of their own imagination. Sometimes I wonder, is that the type of God that we're serving today? Is that the type of God that we're worshipping today? A God of our own making. A God of our own choosing. A God of our own imagination. And we suppose Him to be the God of the Bible. But sometimes it can be a different God entirely. And even while the children of Israel were worshipping this golden calf, they were still, according to verse 5, keeping the feasts of the Lord, Jehovah. They were still offering their sacrifices unto Jehovah. But all they had done was they had brought this physical representation, a golden calf, and they were worshipping it instead. Did you ever wonder why a golden calf? Why not something else? Why a calf made out of gold? Well, gold, of course, speaks of prosperity and riches and wealth and materialism. And they were worshipping a calf made out of gold. And God had blessed the children of Israel whenever they left that night of the Passover with the spoils of Egypt. But they had taken the treasures that God had given them and turned the blessing into a curse. And they were now worshipping the creation rather than the creator. And material prosperity and gold had become the thing that really got their attention and got their affection. Does that replicate in some way the, the church of Jesus Christ in our day and generation? Maybe gold has become our God. Prosperity has become the prophet. Money has become the master. Lucre has become Lord. But it wasn't just gold, it was a golden calf. Why a calf? Well, a calf is an animal of service. A calf can be governed by men and controlled by men to serve us and to meet our own ends. And I really do believe that that's the view that we have of God today. Yes, God meets us at the point of need. Yes, the Son of Man came to minister. But we often have this concept of God, that God is there for us whenever we need Him. But in many respects, He's like this golden calf. He's impersonal. He doesn't require anything of us. 
He certainly doesn't want to be Lord of our lives. He's there to help us and there to serve us. And he's not really a personal God at all. And so while we might not have a physical golden calf in our midst, we can have the same concept of God that he's there to bless us materially. He's there to serve our ends, a God of gold and prosperity, there to gratify us. And we have a utilitarian God in the church of Jesus Christ, who is little more in the minds of many than a simple vending machine sitting in the corner, impersonal. But whenever we need something, we go to him, we put in our prayer, we get our answer, and off we go. And that's all we require. And yet we still go on with the sense of worship. And maybe we're just like the children of Israel. And it says in verse number 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way. Many older saints that have been on the road a lot longer than I have can look back to a time when they were converted and the Spirit of God was moving, and it was taken for granted that now I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I recognize the Lordship of Christ, I spend time in the secret place with God, you walk with God, you've turned your back on self and sin, and you're going through with God, and God's blessing and God's moving all of those years ago. But many are lamenting now that this nation of ours the professing church included, has quickly turned aside out of the way. And this was a direct violation, of course, of Exodus 24. Thou shalt not make unto thyself a graven image. You shall not bow down and worship them. And they were directly violating the, the moral law of God at the foot of the Mount of God, Mount Sinai, whenever the presence of God was in the top of the mountain. And there they are at the foot of it, directly violating the law of God. And they were okay with it. And I think if we're honest, we've got almost to the same place. We can directly violate God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, in different ways. But we're okay with it. Because that's legalism. And it's all about doing what you feel is right. I'm okay with this. And they were all, the majority of them were all okay with worshiping a golden calf. That's the background of the question. Notice or consider, secondly, the gravity or the seriousness of the question. It's a very penetrating question that Moses asks. And we must face it today with honesty. We must face it today openly and sincerely. Are we really on the Lord's side? Am I really on the Lord's side? Are you really on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? In verse number 1 of Exodus 32, you've got impatience. They get tired waiting for Moses to come down. And whenever the church of Christ gets tired waiting upon the Lord and waiting before the Lord and praying for the Spirit of God to come down, we can get so easily sidetracked and diverted. Verse 1, impatience. Verse 4, idolatry. Verse 25, immorality and iniquity. But in the midst of it all, insensitivity. Verses 9 and 10, Moses says, or the Lord says to Moses, this is a stiff-necked people. And he says, Now let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them. They weren't even aware that the Spirit of God was grieved. So easy, isn't it, to go through the motions 
And yet in our hearts, we've turned aside from the things of God. But we're okay with it because most other people are doing the same. Nobody else has a problem with the golden calf, therefore why should I? There's more spiritual people, more learned people in the camp of Israel and others, and they don't have a problem with the golden calf. Sure, Aaron, he's the priest. He's a man chosen by God, and he's made the golden calf. And surely if a man like that can worship a golden calf, there's nothing really all that wrong with or out of sorts with it, but they have turned aside. I wonder today, friends, have we turned aside? Maybe this morning the question that needs to be asked is, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Do you remember how it used to be whenever you were first converted? And you opened your Bible and you were anxious to read the Word of God and hear from the Lord. And you prayed and you witnessed and you went to meetings. And, and there was nothing really different in those days about the form of it all. You went to pray, to worship, to sing, to open your Bible to hear the Word of God, to sit at the Lord's table. You were involved in the work of God. It wasn't a chore. It wasn't mundane. You did it because you loved it, and more than that, you loved the Lord. Maybe you had a family altar, and you prayed with your children. You attended the prayer meetings. You had no problem with separation from apostasy and ecumenism and false religion. Obedience was not a chore, but rather obedience was a delight. But somehow those things have gone. Like Samson. Do you remember Samson? What a, a tragedy the life of Samson was in many respects. He flirted with sin so often that he was able to lie in the lap of Delilah. And whenever she challenged him about the strength and the secret of his strength, he gradually got closer and closer to telling her the truth. And then he did tell her the truth. And then he fell asleep in her lap, like the church sleeping in the lap of the world. And then the badge of his consecration was cut off, and he lost his strength when he was sleeping. But the greatest tragedy was he didn't even realize it. He said, I will arise and stir myself and go out, as at other times. But he wist not that the Lord had departed from him. And he just didn't know. He was no longer on the Lord's side. And the strength and the power went with that. But he wasn't aware of it. Now there can be no more an important question than this. Who is on the Lord's side consciously, decisively, practically, virtually and visibly? I'm sure that Israel, whenever they left Egypt, and whenever they were delivered by the blood of the Lamb, and whenever the Lord led them across the Red Sea and destroyed their enemies, and whenever God sent manna from heaven and they were gathering that manna and they were filled with the joy of the Lord, they couldn't wait to get the land of promise. They never envisaged the day when they would be sitting, worshiping a golden calf. But it happened. It happened. And sometimes whenever we consider where we are and people that we once sat with, and where they now are. Doesn't it show how easy it is for us to get away from the Lord? I can remember 25 years ago or thereabouts, a young Christian man that I knew, and if somebody had asked me, who is the most godly young Christian that you knew, without doubt I would have said this man's name. You could have heard him pray and weep as he prayed over souls. And sadly, he's got far, far away from God. 
living a lifestyle that flies in the face of Scripture, but he's got a new way now of interpreting the Bible that compensates for his lifestyle so he doesn't need to change. All he needs to do is change his theology and change his way of interpreting the Scriptures and call into question the integrity of the underlying texts and the literal inspiration of Scripture and just turn aside from the road that he has once on to accommodate a lifestyle that he knows in his heart flies in the face of Scripture. But that's the day and age, friends, we're living in. We're living in a day whenever people have the idea, if you've got a problem with the teaching of the Bible, just go to a church that doesn't have a problem with that teaching. And just, you know, you don't have to go into the world anymore. You just go to another church where the world's gone into that, and that's okay. It's all fine. And it's just like this golden calf where we're really on the Lord's side. Consider as well the practicalities of the question. This question was deeply practical with practical implications. That's easy for us to say. It's easy for me to stand in the pulpit and say on a Sunday, I'm on the Lord's side. But Monday through Saturday, in the secret place, in the public place, am I really on the Lord's side? Moses didn't stand in Exodus chapter 32 to deliver a little sermon and to have a nicely packaged address with three points, some nice illustrations, scripture proofs, and then a conclusion. He didn't stand there to school the people either. He didn't stand there to give out information. He didn't stand there just to rebuke the people and walk away. Friends, if you read this chapter when you go home, Moses stands at the camp of Israel as a man with a heart that is absolutely broken. And he knew in his heart, this is not, this is not how it's supposed to be. The Lord did not redeem us by blood and bring us out of slavery and open the windows of heaven and lead us to this point to sit and worship images of gold and golden calves. God has brought us out to be a people with hearts for God and to bring us into a land of promise. And Moses can't help but think in his heart, this is not how it's supposed to be. And so he's constrained. I need to ask this group of people, who is on the Lord's side? Come out from the camp and stand with me and let's go through with God and experience God's blessing. And the question, the practicalities, they must be decisive. They must that day make a choice and the outcome of their choice would lead to action and their actions would declare practically whether they were on the Lord's side or not. Now folks, every single day in life we make choices and we make decisions in big things, in small things, in public things, in private things and we either choose self and sin, or we choose to go with God and side with Him. We either choose that which is carnal or that which is spiritual. And what we choose in practical terms shows to a watching world whose side we are really on. 
And the fact that Israel had made a golden calf, and whenever Moses asked this question, many just sat where they were and were not challenged or not changed, showed that they were not really practically on the Lord's side at all. And for so many professing Christians, and I want you to take this thought on board, for so many who profess the name of Jesus Christ, whenever confronted with making a choice, and it's either choosing for self or giving God the benefit of the doubt and saying, I'm going to go God's way on this issue. It seems that for so many, self wins every single time. Whenever it comes to choosing the things of the world or choosing the things of God, whenever it comes to ease or taking up the cross, so often for so many, self wins every single time. I'm going to choose my hobby or am I going to choose the things of God? Am I going to go with what appeals to the flesh or what makes me popular? Or am I going to side with the things of God? Am I going to choose prosperity or purity? Am I going to go with the world and the crowd? Or am I going to side with God? It's very easy, isn't it, whenever everybody's waving their pram branches and singing Hosanna to go with the Lord and be in the Lord's side? But 24 hours later, whenever the same crowd is crying out, crucify, isn't it just easy to say, well, I'll sit in the middle, I'll I'll, I'll just lay down the palm branch, I'll not sing Hosanna, but in doing so, we're showing perhaps that we're not on the Lord's side at all. Why did God give the moral law to the nation of Israel? Why did God say to the nation of Israel, I want you to keep one day in seven, as being a day that is set apart, holy, and sanctified unto me. Is that just to spoil their fun? God's commandments are not grievous. God gave them one day and seven to rest from their labors and their pleasures and their legitimate pursuits for their benefit, because we need a day of rest. But he also did it as a testimony to the world. So whenever the world is doing its thing, Here's a group of people who are saying, we have a day that belongs to God and we're going to honor God and honor his day and worship God. And it was a testimony to the world. There's a people and they're on the Lord's side. Why did God forbid idolatry? Making graven images and bowing down and worshiping them. Because that's what the world did. And they worship God in spirit and in truth. And so the world looks at the nation of Israel worshiping And they're not worshiping graven images. It was a testimony. They belong to the Lord. They're on the Lord's side. And so in practical terms, whenever we make choices and decisions, we're showing perhaps whose side we are really on. It's not legalism. It's a simple love for Christ and a testimony that's visible to others. Daniel, whenever he went to Babylon, was taken to Babylon, the first thing he did, I'm not going to define myself with the king's meat. Why did he do that? He was showing to the world, I'm on the Lord's side. 
Whenever Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down and worship the image in the middle of the plain of Jura, and they would rather be thrown alive into a burning, fiery furnace, and he says, our God is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to bow down. Why did they do that? Is that not extreme? They were simply showing we're on the Lord's side in this issue. Whenever an edict was passed that you weren't allowed to pray to any other god save the gods of Babylon, the king of Babylon, and Daniel went to his room and the windows were opened as they had been aforetime, and he kneeled down and prayed before the world. He was showing the world, I'm on the Lord's side. He didn't try to be pragmatic. He was dealing with principles and absolutes, convictions. Do we have convictions today, friends? Are we on the Lord's side in some of these issues? I was speaking to a young man last year, and he's a motor mechanic, and he works for one of the big uh, manufacturing car companies for one of their, uh, wherever it is, he works, you know, and he mechanics the cars and fixes the cars. And he came to me one day and says, I'm going to have to give up my job. And I said, why? He says, because my boss is asking me to do things that are dishonorable. Tell somebody that they need their oil changed or their filter changed or their timing belt changed and it doesn't need to be changed at all. Or putting in a substandard part and putting it in the box that it's a, an authentic part. And he says, I can't do it and I won't be doing it. And he was willing to say, I'm siding with God in this issue. Maybe nobody would ever find out, but his conscience and his convictions wouldn't let him. 1924, Eric Little was a young man training for the ministry in the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. He was also a great athlete, and he had been asked to participate in the Olympic Games that were being held that summer in the city of Paris. And so he enrolled, he's going to run the 100 meters. But several months before that, he discovered that that race is being held on the Lord's Day. I'm a Christian, now what do I do? Do I do what I want to do, what's going to make me famous? Or do I say, I'm on the Lord's side in this issue? And so whenever he was sitting with the other students and his faculty, after dinner every night, they used to meet together for talk and discussion and fellowship and debate. But whenever he heard that that race was going to be on a Sunday, he took his name out of the hat, and he used to disappear off for several hours on end, and he would come back eight or nine o'clock at night, tired, weary, and exhausted, and nobody knew where he was, but he was practicing for the 400 meters that was held on a weekday. And that wasn't his field of expertise, but he ran the 400 meters, he broke the record, and he won the gold medal. And God honored him and God blessed him. And God used him then as a missionary in China because he was faithful. And whenever it came to the point, are you going to side with God or go your own way? He says, I'm siding with God. I might not win the 400 meters. I might not be allowed to participate at all. But I would rather keep my testimony and my integrity and honor the Lord. And we're confronted with things like this all the time. Alcoholism, relationships, the unequal yoke, heading off to the nightclubs, the pubs, the clubs. And for years, Christians would have said, no, I'm siding with the I'm on the Lord's side in these issues. But now we've muddied the waters, and because we've got our golden calf and our eyes are off the Lord, we can do things that we didn't feel were appropriate before. One last thought in closing, the implications of the question. If you are on the Lord's side, he certainly is on your side. 
The book of Samuel, 1 Samuel 2.30 says, Them that honor God, God will honor. Them that honor me, God says, I will honor them. And the Lord says here through Moses, Who is on my side? And then down at verse number 29, Those who are on the Lord's side, He says, I will bestow upon you a blessing. And so if we side with the Lord, there are implications for time and for eternity. If you show yourself to be on the Lord's side, God says, I will bless you. I will honor you. But if you show yourself not to be on the Lord's side, where does that leave us? Where does that leave me if in practical terms, in day-to-day living, in day-to-day choices, when confronted with self or the things of God, the flesh or the Spirit, and I always side with self, what are the implications of that? Friends, we have to be absolutely honest. We're showing and declaring, I might want the Lord to be on my side over here whenever the hard times come, but I'm not on the Lord's side whenever it comes to acknowledging Him and who He is. If we cannot stand up and step out, and step forward, and go on with God, as he says, come on to me, then something, something is wrong. Friends, God is very clear about this in his word. The Old Testament saints were under no illusion at all as to where they stood with God if they were not choosing to be on his side. Deuteronomy chapter 31 says in verse number uh, 16, the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whither they go to be among them, and I will forsake them and break my covenant with them. My anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And he's very clear, if we can't side with God, this is what's going to happen. And that follows through again and again and again. Joshua, 2 Chronicles, the little book of Ezra, chapter 8 and verse 22. The hand of our God is upon all them for good that, that seek Him, but His power and His wrath is against all them that forsake Him. Many of these pro- promises that we look at in God's Word, they're conditional. All things work together for good. That's true. To them who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. We can't expect all things to work together for good if in practical terms we're not showing that we love the Lord and we're siding with Him. If God be for us, who can be against us? But God is for those who are redeemed by blood and have recognized the Lordship of Christ in our lives. If we're not willing to side with the Lord, Can we really expect God to side with us? If we're not willing to side with the Lord, we must then face, friends, the consequences. Golden calves might be attractive. Golden calves might be popular. But they are absolutely useless in the day of adversity. Whenever you need the living God, a golden calf will be of no value at all. And whenever we stand someday at the judgment seat, Everybody that day wants to be in the Lord's side in eternity. But this is, friends, where the rubber hits the road. Is it evident in our lives? Yes, I'm on the Lord's side. Maybe you've never sided with Christ. You've never chosen Christ. You've never repented and trusted Him. Maybe you've lost out with God like the children of Israel. 
And God stands before you today and asks you this question, are you on my side or not? If you are, then come out and be separate and come and stand here with me. And I'll bless you from this day. I'll be for you and I'll encourage you and strengthen you and help you. Whenever a trial comes, you don't need to make up lost ground. Whenever a crisis comes, you don't need to repent of some sin and throw stuff in your bin at the side of the house to try to curry favor again with God. Those that honor God, God promises to honor them. Who is on the Lord's side? The Savior said, take up the cross. Follow me. Whenever the world was turning against the Lord and crying out, crucify, there were people like Mary that stood at the foot of the cross. Mary, the mother of her Lord. Mary Magdalene, out of whom the Lord had cast seven devils. And they didn't care what the crowd were thinking about them. All they cared was, we want to be on the Lord's side. If that means standing at a cross, looking at a bleeding spectacle that the world hates, standing with our backs to a mocking, cursing crowd, that means being unpopular, if that means being despised and rejected as the Savior was, we're on the Lord's side. Like Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. Friend, I ask you one last time as I ask myself, who is on the Lord's side? May God write His Word upon our hearts, and may God help us to accept it in the spirit that it's intended.